today. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. We're going to come back to this in just a bit, but Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I want you to know, uh, I'm not going to be doing justice to this topic this morning. Um, as we've looked at topics that cause division in the world that we live in, and as we as a church are discovering what it means for us to be one, to be unified, uh, to, to be unified so that the world would know that God sent his son Jesus to save the world, we've been kind of examining whether or not we add to that division as well sometimes by the way we talk. If today, uh, by the time we're done, you feel like I should have said more, I apologize. Um, if by the time that we're done today and you think I've said too much, you need to know that I've tried to show some restraint. Uh, because any biblical look at the topic of race, or specifically racism, uh, begins with a singular understanding. So that's where we're going to start. And it's Genesis chapter 1. Verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. God created us in his own image. The image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. I want you to personalize that just for a second. Think about the implications of that statement, that you were created in the image of God. You, when God created you, were created with um, this kind of holy descriptor. Here's what that means for us as Jesus followers. It means you've never locked eyes with a single person who God did not ascribe that value to. Period. Not a single person who was not created in the image of God. Now, here's what that means, again, for us as Jesus followers. You and I, then, are, are called to ascribe the value that God ascribes to others. Doing so might mean that we have to acknowledge that there's a possibility that maybe we've not done that before. That there might be areas of our lives where we have lacked the, the grace to see other people through the lens and through the eyes of Jesus and acknowledge those things. So, here we go. On uh, April 3rd, 1968, April 3rd, 1968, thousands of black protesters marched down Beale Street in Memphis. Uh, they were already kind of on the verge of conflict and then Dr. Martin Luther King showed up to join them there were 1,300 sanitation workers, the majority of them black, uh, and they'd gone on strike. A couple guys, E. Call, Cole, and Robert Walker, they were collecting trash one day in the rain. They were trying to seek some shelter, and uh, 
all of a sudden in the rain, their machinery malfunctioned and they were pulled into a truck and crushed to death. And the problem with that was, obviously they were crushed to death, but the, the bigger problem was that for years, they'd been petitioning the city of Memphis to provide for them some kind of safety standards. Uh, to, to at least acknowledge that there was a huge risk that they were all facing. And uh, over and over and over again, their demands, their requests were just met with silence or indifference or anything like that. And so uh, what emerged in their anger was a statement. And you see it on the screen. I am a man. It's pretty basic, isn't it? I am a man. A rallying cry that really reflected the reality of black people since the inception of chattel slavery and uh, even after its abolition. It still existed. I am a man. It was a cry to be treated equally, to be treated as something other than just a body to be used, but an actual person, an actual person created in the image of God the very next day, a few blocks away, somebody shot and killed Dr. Martin Luther King. So that was 1968. Now, I, was at a, I did a wedding yesterday, and there was a reception, a reception last night. And uh, if you would have been there, you would have seen my extraordinary dancing skills. I got down with my bad self. I mean, it's just all there is to it. And uh, I would love to tell you I'm paying the price today, but I feel pretty good. I feel pretty good because I am not an old man. Now, my, my children think because I was born in the 1900s that I'm an old man, but I'm not an old man. I'm 47 years old. What I just described to you happened six years before I was born. Only six years before I was born. Now, whether you believe racism is still a real problem or not in our world today, our world knows it is. Our world knows it is. So right up front, I want you to understand this is the posture of the Church of the Nazarene when it comes to discrimination and specifically racism. We are part of the Church of the Nazarene. Now, this is lengthy. There's some documents in the back on the tables. I want to encourage you to take those as you leave. It's got this lengthier statement. And it also has some resources on the back. But I want to read this for you, uh, and you'll see it on the screen. It's in our Church of the Nazarene manual, chapter 915, Discrimination. The Church of the Nazarene reiterates its historic position of Christian compassion for people of all races. We believe that God is the creator of all people, and that of one blood are all people created. We believe that each individual, regardless of race, color, gender, creed, should have equality before law, including the right to vote, equal access to educational opportunities, to all public facilities, and the equal opportunity according to one's ability to earn a living free from any job or economic discrimination. We urge our churches, that's us, everywhere, to continue and strengthen programs of education to promote racial understanding, and harmony. We renounce any form of racial and ethnic indifference, exclusion, subjugation, or oppression as a grave sin against God and our fellow human beings. 
We lament the legacy of every form of racism throughout the world, and we seek to confront that legacy through repentance, reconciliation, and biblical justice. We seek to repent of every behavior in which we have been overtly or covertly implicit, complicit, sorry, with the sin of racism, both past and present. And in confession and lament, we seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Further, we acknowledge that there is no reconciliation apart from human struggle to stand against and to overcome all personal, institutional, and structural prejudice responsible for racial and ethnic humiliation and oppression. We call upon Nazarenes everywhere to identify and seek to remove acts and structures of prejudice, to facilitate occasions for seeking forgiveness and reconciliation, and to take action toward empowering those who've been marginalized. Point of clarification, every four years the Church of the Nazarene meets and cranks out another manual, the reason that says 2017 to 2021 is because of COVID. So we just entered a six-year cycle instead of four. So the next Church of the Nazarene manual will be coming out probably in the next year or two. Let me summarize this statement. Can I do that really quick? In the kingdom of God, there is zero space for racism and bigotry. Period. Period. It sounds pretty simple. In the kingdom of God, the full imago dei, that, that's the image of God, is realized in every single person. Every person. So the natural question then is, why in the world would God create so many different races then? Why do you do that? But what you and I need to understand is that race is not a spiritual or even a biological designation. It's not a biological reality. Divisions based on geography and based on color establish supremacy of one group over another. That's the source of those divisions, is the idea that there's one group that should be elevated above another group based on geography or based on color. That's racism. And so no, no person has higher value over another based on place or appearance. And as you drive around this region in northwest Indiana, do you believe that? Do we, as a church, model that? This Bible talks about race in a couple of different ways. Um, the first really is in the reference to the human race, all-encompassing language every single person that's ever been created, okay? The human race, Job 20, 28, 28, God refers to speaking to the human race. That's, that's everybody, okay, all people. The other way that race is sometimes used, the actual word race in Scripture, is when in some translations of Scripture, the word race is used in place of maybe a better translation, which would be people or humankind, humankind, okay? So, but categorically, the Bible acknowledges that all people are created in the image of God. No one's left out. All people are created in the image of God. There's no race of people who need to become less like themselves in order to be equal with others. Are you following me there? Okay, there's no group of people who are required to forsake their identity to fit in. Segregation is still today... Evidence of placing undeserved valuations 
on people or groups. It has a lasting legacy. Not in some far-fetched, detached place, but even here in the region, in the region. Uh, last week, we, we covered the topic of immigration. That one might be the most tame one out of all four of these. <laughs> but we, we covered the topic of immigration. Immigration doesn't just cross national borders. Uh, between 1915 and 1970, one of the largest migrations of people to ever occur happened. And most people don't know that it happened right here in the United States. Over six million black Southerners left the only homes that they'd ever known, any life that they'd ever known, just seeking to migrate north to see if they could be considered equal to whites. And what they discovered is that just because you take a whites only sign down out of a window, that doesn't change people. It does not change people. They encountered sundown towns. How many of you have ever heard of sundown towns? Sundown towns were places where, if you were there, you were not allowed to be there after dark if you were black for fear of repercussion, okay? One of those towns existed painfully close to right here, to right here. They found large, small cities, ushering them into designated neighborhoods. Laws were passed, policies established to, to segregate. The whole thing was called the Great Migration. The Great Migration. So 50-plus years of northern migration. Racism was revealed to not just be a southern thing. It was an eastern thing. It was a western thing. It was a northern thing. It was a northwest Indiana thing. It was a region thing. There's a book, In the Warmth of Other Suns, Isabel Wilkerson, she says this, by the time the migration reached its conclusion, sociologists would have a name for that kind of hardcore racial division, hypersegregation, a kind of separation of the races that was so total, so complete that blacks and whites rarely intersected outside of work. The top 10 cities that would earn that designation after the 1980 census in order of severity Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Newark, Gary, Indiana, Philadelphia, L.A., Baltimore, St. Louis. You might be thinking, all right, Rich, you just moved to the region this last year. Like, we kind of knew some of this stuff, right? My reason for sharing this with you is not to give you a TED Talk. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's, it's not to convince you of racism or the idea that it exists today. Uh, it's this. My reason for sharing this with you is because the pattern of this world is division. That is the pattern of this world, is to separate people, to divide us. It's the pattern of this world. We, as the body of Christ, are to not conform ourselves to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are one in Jesus Christ. Those divisions aren't given a foothold in the kingdom of God. For the church, there is no space for racism. Racism is sin. And at first blush, saying that sounds like a ridiculous thing that you have to say, right? Of course, racism is sin. But how often do churches treat racism as sin. In the Lord's Prayer before the message that you saw in that video, 
There's the line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, where? As it is in where? Heaven, right? We want to see your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we get a picture of what heaven looks like. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that nobody could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There it is, black, white, brown, everything in between. It's God's vision for that to take place. So if God had a vision for every people group, every language, tribe, nation, standing equally before the throne of God, is that reflected in the expression of the kingdom of God in our world today? Is the church helping to see that happen? This is why that passage in Ephesians 2 that I read for you at the beginning is so important. It gives us incredible vision when it comes to division in our world. And the first thing that we see from that passage is this. No walls. No walls. In verse 14, Paul says, When Christ died, when Jesus Christ died, he dismantled the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what, is, what that's actually referring to is the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem. So if you were to go to the temple in Jerusalem at that time, uh, you would see four walls that would be established in the temple in, in Jerusalem. The outer court, the first wall, would be the court of Gentiles. That was the furthest away from the place where God resided. So the Gentiles were out here in the outer courts. Next, you had the court of women. Next, you had the court of basically everybody else, the Israelites. Then you had the court of the priests. So you had all of these walls of division. In 1871, archaeologists on that Gentile wall on the far outside, they found the writing this, do not proceed any further for fear of death. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like segregation. Segregation. In 1787, there's a black man who knelt at an altar at his church. His church. But it was the whites-only section of the altar. And so some men picked him up and threw him out physically of the building, his own church. So he and a few other black individuals gathered to start the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME denomination. There are moments in history where the church has not reflected the kingdom of God. It's just a fact. We always wonder, why are there black churches and white churches? It goes back to stuff like this. Because, if I can be frank, white people didn't want to worship with black people. <laughs> you have to go do your own thing. There are moments in history where the church has not reflected the kingdom of God. What began in 1787 that launched this really sad representation of the kingdom that continues today. So yes, these divisive walls have been torn down, but sometimes unconsciously they get re-erected. They get built back up. And you might be thinking, hey man, it's 2022. Dude, we've had a black president. I think the walls have come down. There's a sociologist, Michael Emerson. He says that a multi-ethnic church, a multi-ethnic church, has no single ethnicity making up more than 
That's what is defined as a multi-ethnic church. No single ethnicity or race makes up more than 80%. I think that's a generous statistic. Only 2.5% of churches in the United States fall in that category. All right, now listen, I get it. I, I, I pastored in a place called Oskaloosa, Iowa at one point. You want to go to the middle of nowhere in a bunch of cornfields, okay? It's fairly homogenous. So the idea that you're going to have like 80%, you know, it, it, I get that, all right? But 2.5% with all of the churches we have in semi and full urban areas, 25 the problem is God's intention was this, one man. In Jesus, it was something that the world had never seen. I mean, the, the churches of that first century, they're Jews and Gentiles, people literally, traditionally, culturally, ethnically even sometimes, coming together, sharing meals together, worshiping together. They were truly one. It's an amazing thing. There was absolutely no paradigm for that before. I mean, in fact, before that, all the walls were up. There were rules about the walls. But in Jesus Christ, it seemed like those things didn't matter anymore. There's no longer slave nor free. There's no longer Jew nor Greek. There's only one in Jesus Christ. I mean, they literally lived that out. It's this amazing thing. Can I tell you what I see, real life? Can I tell you what I see? As your pastor, I see a church that is in that 2.5%. I am committed to that. A church that is in that 2.5%. While we are not as homogenous, okay, as other churches, when a divided world sees us, do they see one man? Do they see one man? Do we reflect, right now, the diversity of our community? Okay. So, at first blush... Portage, Indiana, doesn't look to be the most diverse place on the planet. Agreed? Make no mistake, there is diversity here in Portage, and it's increasing at a pretty radical rate. These aren't on the screen, I just forgot. 10% population increase in 20 years. In 20 years, the population just of Portage, we're not talking about Hammond, we're not talking about Hobart, we're not talking about Lake Station, we're not talking about, uh, you know, Ogden Dunes, we're not talking about East Chicago, we're not talking about any of those other, just just Portage, just Portage, Indiana, had a 10% increase in population between 2000 and 2020. In 2087% of the people who lived in Portage, Indiana were white. 87% in 2000, white, non-Hispanic. In 2020, 67% white, non-Hispanic. 87 to 67 in 20 years. In those 20 years, the Hispanic population doubled. It doubled. The black population, sixfold. Now, this is not about a guilt trip to say that we intentionally don't reflect that. Uh, It's just awareness. We need to be aware. 
It's also, I think, an invitation to any church to lead the way. We should be leading the way. If there's anything in the world today that ought to reflect oneness, it should be the body of Christ leading the way. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? It happens through a cross. Oh, Rich. Okay. You've probably gotten a feeling (laughs) for where I'm at on this. Uh, My prayer is that you understand it comes from one place. It comes from the gospel. I want you to know, I can't, I don't do things that I'm not willing to ask other people to do. I think that's goofy, (laughs) to try to ask people to do stuff I myself won't do. Uh, In the last month, I've intentionally sought out at least three different pastors of color in the region, from East Chicago to Gary to here. East Chicago to Gary to here, I've eaten with them, I've had conversations with them, I've asked them their stories. I've asked them about their experiences in the region and their experiences with racism in the region. In June, myself, those three other men right now, and hopefully a few others, I'm going to be making some connections this coming Thursday, but we're talking about coming together in June and having a racial reconciliation prayer event for the entire region. And what does it look like for the body of Christ to gather together as one? We get a little flavor of what that looks like in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And understand what it means to come together as one. No walls, one man, and a cross. And a cross. That happens ultimately for one reason. And really only one reason. Paul tells us this through the death of Jesus Christ and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's what unites us. In a world full of divisions, we have the great unifier in the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's just no debate about that. In fact, we find it, Paul talks about this actually in the verses preceding the ones I read to you earlier, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 2. And in verses of 4 and 7 there it says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The gospel is what brings us together. The gospel. It's Jesus in me. It's Jesus in you. And it's Jesus in others that brings us together. I want to close with this challenge. The first is this, be aware. Be aware. Look at your own life. Um, Study history. Do not just pick up one-liners from social media or hot takes from politicians. Please do not do that. Um, Examine your own personal narrative, your own experiences. And then put yourself in a place of learning. Can we do that? Put ourselves in a place of learning. If you need references for books, uh, there's some on the sheets uh, in the back, on the back of those. Uh, but learn. And make sure that when you pick your sources, and I'm, I'm very careful with this. Um, I try to be. Pick your sources very carefully. And whatever you read, whatever you receive, as far as information goes, 
always, always, always view that stuff through the eyes of Jesus and the words of Jesus that you find in the Gospels. But then be relational. Be relational. One of the greatest, and we talked about this last week, one of the greatest disservices we do, and, and we rob ourselves. We don't even get it. One of the greatest disservices we ever do is to make assumptions without ever getting to know the people we make assumptions about. <laughs> get to know some people. Develop a relationship. Invite somebody into your home. And don't force a discussion about race. And I know I just told you I sat down with a bunch of black pastors and a Hispanic pastor and talked about race. That, that's just what I do, okay? You don't have to do that. Don't sit down and talk about race. Listen, those walls have already come down. Those walls have come down. Listen to somebody's story. Get to know somebody's story. The other person through a proper theology of the image of God. And then finally, be committed I think, and I, I'm guilty of this, I think we naturally fear what's different. We naturally hesitate when we're around experiences that don't reflect our personal experience. The dividing wall, whether we want to acknowledge this or not, and this is across any racial situation, white, black, brown, black, black, white, whichever direction you want to go with it. Sometimes those walls provide comfort. Sometimes those walls provide familiarity. I just need to tell you, in front of the throne of God in heaven, there ain't going to be no wall. So we should probably get familiar now. Get familiar now. Uh, there are no amount of books that you can read or conversations sufficient enough to dismantle racism. Ask yourself what you might be able to do. And again, there's some resources on the back of that sheet in the back. You doing okay? As your pastor, and these are those moments where you just, I guess you get to decide <laughs> what you think of me. Um, I've tried to model this, and, and I need you to know, I don't do this just to maybe try to be an example of what this looks like. I just need you to understand, I do this to be faithful who God designed me to be as a follower of Jesus. I, I can't, for me, for me to live in a region like we live in, and to not work hand in hand with people of different races, than me, people of different experiences than me. To me, I feel like I'm, I, I would be being negligent to who God has asked me to be as a follower of Jesus Christ. I'd be unfaithful, me personally, to the fact that the dividing wall has come down. Whatever you do, whatever you do, just do something different. Do something different. Take a step. If you know Jesus, here's my guarantee. If you say you know Jesus Christ, guess whose step is first? Yours. Your step is first. Jesus Christ came to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ came to us. If you know Jesus, you go. Your step is the first one. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, Paul says that Jesus died 
to dismantle the dividing wall, to cause one new man to rise up united by the cross. My prayer is that we will experience some of that as a church community. Uh, as that begins to progress, and uh, as we begin to look at maybe in June having that racial reconciliation prayer event uh, for the region, we'll keep you in the loop, let you know what you can do. But I pray that you would just lock arms with me on that journey somewhat. And when the opportunities arise uh, to do that, um, I learned a long time ago, my, my first posture is one of humility in learning, in learning. And we don't learn until we get to know people, people. Sound like a plan? <laughs> okay. I want to share with you just some information here before we're done. I snorted there. Did you hear that? I snorted. I did. All right, so we're at the end of the church year. The church year ends at the end of February, kicks back up again at the beginning of March. It doesn't end on December 31st or January 1st. That would make way too much sense. So we are weird, and so our church year ends at the end of February. And what that means is we have annual elections for those who will be serving in board positions, positions of leadership like that, as well as uh, people who are going to be delegates to our district assembly, which will actually be here this year in May. And so I want to explain this process a little bit because I feel like maybe it's been a few years since this process has been explained and maybe fleshed out the way that it's being fleshed out now. So um, let me explain. So how this happens is as we get closer to the end of a church year, I meet with the church board. I talk about just the details at the end of the church year. And we realize that we're going to have to have elections. And so according to the Church of the Nazarene Manual, it's my responsibility to form a nominating committee. That nominating committee, that list of names that I bring to the church board, and the church board has to approve those names to be on a nominating committee who are going to nominate for people to be positions and to be on that ballot. And so that's what I did. I uh, pulled together a pretty good representation, I think. I make sure there's a couple board members. I make sure there's a staff person. I make sure there's a, a smattering of leaders from other different areas of the church all on that list. The church board approved that. And then we had a meeting, and in that meeting, I present to them some information. I talk about what it means to be a leader in the church, what the responsibilities and the job is for people to be on the church board, uh, the significance of the spiritual health of those that serve on the church board and in different areas of leadership. And then as a nominating committee, they have a list of members, and, uh, and we go through that process of beginning to nominate people for different positions. Uh, in the church leadership. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a painful process. It's hard. Uh, but, but we try to be as above board as we can. We don't have weird discussions about, well, you know, Jerry. You know, it's not like that business, okay? I run a tight ship. And so uh, after the end of that, what happens is those people that have been nominated, they get a, a message from me. Hey, you've been nominated, and here's the position, and here's what that looks like. And then they have a resp uh, an opportunity to respond, yes or no, to accepting that, and then it gets placed on a ballot. This sounds like so much fun information for me to regurgitate to you right now, right? That's how it happens. Okay, and so what's going to happen is the last Sunday of February, uh, if you're a member of this church, 
Uh, you're going to be invited to between the services and during the second service and after the second service to go to the community space. There's going to be ballots out there. I'm working on getting a sample ballot that maybe we'll put on a couple walls out in the foyer so you can kind of get an idea before then. But uh, that ballot's going to be available uh, for those that are members of the church to vote. Is that February 27th? Just... That's the 27th, right? Okay, I'm just making sure. February 27th, that's, that's when that's going to take place. And um, if you have any questions about that whatsoever, just let me know. You'll be electing uh, board members and delegates. That's, that's what it comes down to. And uh, I'm pleased to tell you that this year there's actually a pretty huge pool of people. Uh, there's a couple yes, no things, but, but there's a lot of different people that have stepped up. <laughs> a lot of people that have stepped up this last year. So I, listen, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I don't know what the board members this year have told you about being on the board. That like... No, I'm just kidding. It's really kind of fun. I think it is. I'm the one in charge of it. <laughs> so, but uh, it's just kind of, it's been a really remarkable revelation for me probably in the last three weeks to see how many of you um, are passionate about where we are and where we're going as a church. That's exciting to me. Um, and it tells me, it speaks to me in my heart about health and about passion and about your love for Jesus. And so I just want you to know I'm thrilled to be doing this with you. So, all right, I'm going to ask you to stand. Father, you've, uh, you've dismantled this wall, uh, this wall that men throughout the ages have continued to seek to reinstate. And so, Father, we know that there are active systems and active things of racism today, and we probably don't look at ourselves and think that we are in that camp, and it's, it's true. But Father, we do have a voice. And while we don't want to add to the division in the world, there is a time to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters, those who are created in the image of God, to love one another, to serve one another, and to come together as one voice so that the world might see Jesus. That's the goal here, Father. Even in our differences, even in our differences of opinion, maybe about this, the goal is that the world would see Jesus. Not us, not our opinions, but that the world would see Jesus, it's Jesus. It's Jesus who brought us here together today. We leave with him today. And Father, we are so grateful for the gift of salvation that we have through him. We love you, and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a fantastic, fantastic day. <clears throat>